Welcome to our podcast, Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Today on Star Trek Age of Discovery, we dive into Terra Firma Part 2, the 10th episode of Season 3. We'll summarize the plot and then discuss our impressions of the show. We'll end our podcast with recent Star Trek news. But before we begin... Please remember, our analysis will contain spoilers, so if you haven't watched the episode, you may want to do so before listening to our comments. Now, Gary, let's get started. Okay, so the primary plot focuses on Giorgio's attempt to rehabilitate her adopted daughter, Michael Burnham, and to learn how to expand her concept of her own humanity beyond the dog-eat-dog mentality she had assumed for most of her life. The Emperor gives Captain Killy free reign to break Burnham and to learn of her co-conspirators as long as the Terran captain does not kill her. Giorgio reasons there is no other way to reach her because she notes that in the Terran universe, strength is power and terror is love. That's sick. (laughs) So in her quarters... Saru's mirror universe counterpart helps Giorgio ready herself for her bath. When she tells him she would like him to remain as her personal servant, the Kelpian says he cannot do so since he is about to enter into the Vaharai stage of his life, which Kelpians believe will lead to madness. Like other Kelpians who have reached this stage, he expects to be killed and then eaten by the Terrans. However, Giorgio tells him the myth is not true. Instead, he should lock himself in his quarters for a few days until the, Varah- the Varahai passed. She confides he will survive and be stronger after going through this stage. Shocked by her disclosure, Saru contends that There's no way she could be Terran. He also advises her to go to wherever she belongs because she would not be able to survive in the Terran universe. Yeah, he figures it out. She ain't from around here. Right, right. Well, she is. She's just been away for a while. She's been changed. That is true. So after Burnham endures weeks of torture and deprivation, Detmer comes to her in the brig and attempts to convince her to give in to the Emperor's demands. Finally... Burnham puts on a facade of contrition and claims her renewed allegiance to the Emperor. With Detmer's assistance, she murders many of her treacherous crew and caps off cleansing by slaying Detmer herself. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Detmer didn't figure that one uh-oh, out. <laughs> uh-oh. <laughs> they now only have to apprehend Mer- Burnham's lover, Gabriel Lorca. They get a lead for for them to find one of Lorca's cohorts, a, a man named Duggan. They get uh, after finding him, they transport Duggan aboard the, to the brig of Tilly's ship. Just as Duggan advises Giorgio not to trust Burnham, Michael kills him and initiates an attempt to assassinate the Emperor so she can usurp the throne. However. Giorgio had planned for her daughter's possible betrayal and her loyalists, including. Captain Killing and two Kelpians to come to her aid. Mm-hmm. 
The opposing forces engage in a deadly fight until both Michael and Giorgio are mortally wounded. Saru's counterpart tenderly holds the Emperor in his arms as she gasps her last breath. Then Giorgio finds herself back on Dennis 5 and demands to know from Carl if what she went through actually happened. The Prime Universe, Michael Burnham, thinks Giorgio is disoriented because she insists only a minute has passed since Giorgio had walked through the portal. However, Giorgio's bio bracelet proves she had experienced three months of life elsewhere. However, she then undergoes another painful episode of her body molecules acting erratically. She demands to know why she is not cured. Carl reveals himself to be the guardian of forever, the same entity first introduced to Star Trek audiences in the original series episode, The City on the Edge of Forever. Okay, I think you need to actually say it, Gary. You know, the way Carl said it. I am the... I am the guardian (laughs) of forever. Does that work? That works for me. Okay. So he said um, she had to endure the experiences in the Terran universe as a test to determine if she was truly changed and her, her purpose in life. Although Giorgio could not change the Terran Michael's fate as she had hoped, the Emperor did change Kelpian's future for the better, and Giorgio's intentions were deemed to be righteous enough to give her a second chance. All right. So Carl invited Giorgio to go through the Guardian of Forever portal to start a new life with her newfound sensibilities. Before walking through the portal, she told Michael that Saru had conducted himself admirably in his position as Discovery's captain. However, she says, he is not the only one suited for the captain's chair. You have always been far greater than you could have imagined, Michael. Burnham watched Giorgio step through the portal, knowing she would never see her again. Back aboard Discovery, the crew held awake for Giorgio in the mess hall and reminisced what she had meant to them. At episode's end, we return to the season's story arc. Using emerald chain technology offered to them by book, the Discovery crew learned there is still one life sign aboard the Kelpian ship that had been stranded in the Veruban Nebula over 100 years ago. Saru informs Admiral Vance of their findings. Now, while Vance is not pleased he had not been told about the ship earlier, he displays even more displeasure about not being told about the use of emerald chain technology. Mm. The Admiral gives Discovery permission to investigate the stranded Kelpian vessel. However, he warns Saru that Osira may also show up in search of dilithium to replace her almost exhausted source of this mineral needed to power her ships. Okay. As with the first part of this story, Terraforma Part 2 was co-written by Bo Young Kim, Erica Leipold, and Alan McElroy with a teleplay by Kalinda Vasquez. Vasquez wrote the wonderful short treks episode, Ask Not, which featured uh, Spock and number one trapped in a tur- turbo lift. Mm-hmm. 
In the last five years, she has written for Fear of the Walking Dead, Marvel's Runaways, and Once Upon a Time, where she was co-executive director for all three shows. Earlier in her career, Vasquez was staff writer on Prison Break and The CW's Nikita. The director of this episode was Chloe Domont. She is a writer and director who is best known for her work on HBO's Ballers and the USA Network shows Suits and Shooter. She graduated from the Tisch School of the Arts at New York University with a BFA degree in film and television. This episode connects three different storylines from across Star Trek's canon. Obviously, all the Mirror Mirror Universe episodes that we've seen in the, in the respective series. Um, the City on the Edge of Forever is another storyline that's connected here. Mm-hmm. And also the Temporal Wars that we were introduced to during Star Trek Enterprise. So you're going to talk about those later. Right? I am going to talk about them later. And I found a lot of interesting information about that. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So let's jump into the analysis for the episode. From, uh, part two continues the storyline we began in part one following Emperor Philippa Giorgio seeking a cure for her lethal condition. But that mission is supplanted by Giorgio's desire to save her daughter, Michael, and by that act, change the outcome of events that could lead to the transformation of the Terran Empire. In fact, the episode picks up almost moments after the close of the previous one. A lot happens in this story, but the best part about it is that it provides both of our main characters with with rich material and fantastic development. Easily, this was Michelle Yeoh's best episode of the series. Oh, without a doubt. It's a fitting exit for her character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, without a doubt. I thought she got to play a range of nuances that we wouldn't have seen her portray. We haven't really seen her portray otherwise. So we've said during this analysis of the previous two episodes, but I think this statement bears some repeating. This story arc has been the most significant examination of Giorgio's character since she crossed over into the Prime Universe. I mean, we've seen her explore much more of an emotional range this season than we had seen prior to this. Her complicated feelings towards both the Prime Universe version of Michael have and and her the daughter she left and killed in the in the mirror universe have developed into a sense of longing and love for the surrogate daughter. They've made her long for connection Mm -hmm. and a vulnerability that you really haven't, that she would not have been capable of displaying otherwise. Definitely. So prior to this season, all that, that she's been asked to do is to deliver clever quips or high kicks into an enemy's face, sometimes both at the same time. However, this two-part story puts Giorgio at an important intersection in her journey. She is taken back to a period prior to her introduction to the Prime Universe when she had a target painted on her back by her enemies, including her adopted daughter. This time, she's armed with all the knowledge she's acquired in the Prime Universe, specifically that the Empire ended only a few decades after she left. Giorgio is given a chance to create a new future, to save her daughter, and thereby 
save the Terran Empire. Fully aware of the true depth of the plot against her, Giorgio is acknowledges the limitations when what that come from ruling with an iron fist. She has seen how differently things function in the Prime Universe, leading her to comprehend how much her time on the Discovery has changed her. She has returned a more evolved person than the one we first met in Despite Itself. Using the dual threats of pain and terror couldn't be the only ways to inspire loyalty and stay in power. For Jojo, all that insight is the foundation on which the events of this season have helped her develop into a new being. Everything we saw her experience this season was leading us to this story. Her anxiousness to repair Discovery's communications so that they could contact Michael. The momentary display of joy when Michael reunites with the crew. Her willingness to assist Michael in her quest to rescue Book. Even this life-threatening condition initially triggered flashbacks to the death of San. These were important because all of these reactions were there to remind Giorgio of her own capacity to care for someone else. Compassion was a luxury. She had denied herself as she rose to power. It was also the main thing the prime version of Michael had nurtured in her. As another example of the duality that we've seen throughout this entire season, when we go back to the mirror universe, it's now Giorgio's turn to, to help the Terran version of Burnham realize the same capacity of compassion is in her. Yes. It's Giorgio's strategy to remind this rebellious Burnham of the traumatized young orphan she once was, the child plagued with night terrors who was only comforted by escaping to a field of fireflies. Mm. So Giorgio's scenes with the Mirror Universe version of Saru were also very important to showcase how much Giorgio had changed. As the final gift to Giorgio, Michael tells Saru that she would not be seen again. This allows him to report that she died to not reveal that they had violated the temporal accords to Vance. Yeah, because basically using the Guardian of Forever. Oh, yeah. They should, well, yeah, you know, they're breaking all the temporal rules. Exactly. And also it would reveal that they knew where the Guardian was. Right, 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 right. right. Which would mean... The, you know, the, uh, it would be a temptation. It to would use, be a huge temptation because, and because they did it before. Right. I mean, that's the reason why he's out there on that barren planet. Yeah, he planet. said both sides had used, tried to use. And, and we've also heard earlier in this season how the Federation was a part of the temporal wars. That's right. Yeah. So let's move on to bits and pieces. So the first one we want to talk about is Captain Killy. I want to give a shout out to Mary Wiseman oh, for yeah. a, this a devilish turn as Captain Killy. Her pleasure at torture was a sheer delight to watch. Um, she has this Yeoman Ran inspired hairdo that is all up on top of her head. Oh yeah, and 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 what it shows is the the again a lot more of the range that we that we don't always see with 
Tilly. You know, I mean, yeah. last season, oh. I think we were we were both disappointed. Oh yeah, at at how much it wasn't she, her; it was the writer. It was the writing because yeah. she, you know we had that mycelial network storyline that was in the first five episodes. That and once it played out. So did she, because right. she was just in the background for she the rest of the, the season. Or they would have her do just really silly stuff. Yeah, you yeah. Know, and, and, and I thought that it was undermined. But this was another opportunity for her to show another color to her character and potential right. and, and also a level of skill, which she has been doing this entire season. That's right. So uh, we, we want to just, just take a moment to, to call her out for attention and recognition for that. Yeah. So now we're going to turn to Detmer Watch. That's right. Detmer Watch. Uh, so this time it was Mirror Detmer Watch. We got quite a bit from her uh, in that we saw her wearing the scant version of the Terran outfit. You know, the, the scant that, you know, where the, the, oh, yeah. the, the skirt and the pants, which, oh, yeah. which is kind of silly when you think about so, it. And, and you saw that in the scene where she's visiting Michael on the bridge. Right, right, right. She was revealed to have been one of Michael's co-conspirators in the coup plot against George O. Sadly, the loyalty she shows to mirror Michael isn't returned. Yeah, yeah, like big time. Yeah, yeah right, exactly. <laughs> she got the business end of the knife, yes. and, that, and that was about the end of that it. That was it. So let's move on to one of my favorites in this show, Admiral Vance. So Vance was upset that, that Saru had used Book's sensor extender um, technology that because it was Admiral Chain technology. Mm-hmm. But it was also used as a plot device. We obviously had to get information from, from that ship that was in the Verubin Nebula. Right. And there was nothing that was actually working on the discovery. So they had to come up with something that, that made that happen. And, and this, and it also gave book something to do because otherwise he didn't have anything to do for the whole episode. Right, right. <laughs> it's like, Oh, remember he's still, yeah, on, yeah, the he's ship. still on the ship. Right. And you know, those field manuals aren't exactly that interesting. That's correct. But, um, I, I know this is my pet speculation, yes, it is. but, um, there's also another um, element of duality this season that has that I think we've seen but we haven't really recognized, and that's the descriptions that we've heard of both the Federation and the Emerald Chain. We've seen how, in many cases, their respective detractors of for both organizations have painted them as intimidating their partner planets to do things against their own better judgment that was obviously at the core of sanctuary when we went back to books home brothers home planet yep you know um we we also saw that as part of the trip to navarre with the vulcans yeah i mean the whole issue around the sb19 experiments and the and the burn are directly related to the vulcans doing something they did not think was in the best judgment of everyone and yeah and so that's that too is an aspect of how both of these organizations have intimidated their partners so anyway i just think that there's i know i know adele is tired of hearing this (laughs) but i really do think that there is more to the current state of the federation than there has been in the past and i suspect what it may 
may have a factor in is might have something to do with the temporal wars because that very action is a violation of what the Federation believed in. You know, they had a right. whole agency that was designed on policing the timeline. That's right. Um, so it's just odd that now they were willingly participating in this manipulation of the time, time stream. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about Jet Reno. Yes. So, <laughs> so this is the second time this season, during the appearance of Chief Engineer Jet Reno, that she's been seen eating something. Previously, she was eating a bowl of salsa and chips during her interrogation by Federation holograms. This time, she comes to Stamets' lab, and she's munching on a strand of licorice. Maybe this will become a recurring bit of business with her character, uh, but from now on, every time we'll see her, is she going to be nibbling on something? You, you, you know, back when I was in college, you know, you're, you're taking acting classes as a neophyte actor. Yep. Um, the teacher might give you a prop or some bit right. of business to occupy yourself right. on because if you're not able to really get into the character or you don't really know what to do with your hands or whatnot. Right. And I'm just saying that oh, might oh, be, yeah, I agree that might be why, because that the, when she came out with this, with the, the licorice, right. it was like, what the hell is she doing with this licorice? And, and does she, does she really fit into these scenes? I mean, does she focus on what is going on? It always seems like she's she's just kind of observing mm-hmm. instead of being a part of the scene. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway. Yeah, I mean, we're giving her more time than she's worth, I think. <laughs> yeah, okay. anyway. All right, so let's move on. The next thing we want to talk about is the Verruban Nebula, which I think the next three episodes are going to provide us with more opportunity to explore. So thanks to books, Emerald Chain Technology, Stamets and Adira have managed to establish a lock on the computers on, on the Kiath that's stuck inside the Verubin Nebula. Yeah, that's that ship. The, yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yep, yep. Um, and th- that they can then download the data, including acknowledging the knowledge that there is one life sign on the, sh- the vessel presently. Hmm. Now, this is a ship that's been in there for... Over 100 years. Right, over 100 years, prior to the burn. And yet... There's a life sign on there. Yep. And we already know that Saru saw the image of the doctor. Right. And was compelled to to look at it more than once. And and during that image we saw the reflection of some radiation burns along the forehead of the of of the doctor. Right. So there's some interesting there's an interest in Saru's interest, there's an interest in the damage, and, and then now is a query. Who's, who's over 100 years old living up in a ship right. stuck in a nebula? Mm. You know, speaking of uh, talking about this ship that was stranded in the mm-hmm. nebula, mm-hmm. so Dr. Isa, yes. remember the Kelpian who voiced the stress message? Right. Well, that act, uh, actor who played that Kelpian was Hannah Spear. Now, oh. she, she's the same actress who played Saru's sister, Sirana, 
last season in the Sound of Thunder episode. Right, right. So this could mean that Saru wasn't just fixated on the first Kelpian he's seen since coming to the 32nd century. Because that's what Vance says. Yeah, yeah. It could be that he recognized her facial similarity to his sister. That could possibly mean that the being aboard the Kiev ship could be a descendant of Saru's family. Well, that's a possibility. It is a possibility. So I guess we'll find out. I guess I'm I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, hopefully we will find out. Next well, week. we're gonna find. We we found out that Carl was the guardian of the forever, <laughs> which you know we kind of knew that anyway. We knew that anyway. We yeah. knew we we the, the the door was a was a dead giveaway. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So let's move on to insufficient facts always invite danger. Okay, so th- so again, as we've said before, these are topics that, that crop up in the episode concerning Star Trek history, characters, episodes, and canonical allusions. Or they might just be a genuine Easter egg. So Adele, why don't you go first? Sure. So I want to talk about the origins of the Vulcan salute. In Terra Firma... Part two, before Giorgio steps into the Guardian of Forever portal for the last time, she exchanges a salute with Michael. For the Terrence salute, Georgia clenches her fist and brings it to her chest. Michael reciprocates with a Vulcan salute, which was first introduced to Star Trek audiences by Leonard Nimoy, who played Spock, beginning with the original series. Really? The Vulcan gesture, usually accompanied by with the words "live long and prosper," is easily recognized by Star Trek fans as well as those familiar with icons of popular culture. According to an article by Rabbi Yonasan Gershom, the Vulcan salute was invented on the set by Leonard Nimoy during the filming of the second season. Uh, the original series premiere episode, A Mock Time, which takes place on Spock's home planet. Nimoy felt that there should be some kind of distinctive greeting among Vulcans, analogous to a handshake or a bow. Alan Dean Foster's novelization, based on an early script, had Spock kneeling before the Vulcan matriarch to Powell, who places her hand on his shoulder like royalty dubbing a knight. Mm. But Nimoy didn't care for this idea. Previous episodes had already established that Vulcans are touch telepath. Therefore, a touch on the shoulders would be viewed as an invasion of privacy. Mm. Instead, the actor, the son of Jewish immigrants, drew upon his own experience attending services at a synagogue. The Vulcan greeting is based upon a blessing gesture used by the Kohanim during the worship service. The Kohanim are the genealogical descendants of the Jewish priests who served in the Jerusalem temple. Modern Jews no longer have priests leading services as in ancient times. However, a remnant of the temple service lives in the Kohanim blessing ritual that is performed on certain holy days. The actual blessing is done with both arms held horizontally in front at shoulder level, with hands touching and fingers forming the Hebrew letter Shin, 
which is this case, in this case stands for the word Shaddai, meaning Almighty God. Nimoy modified this gesture into one hand held upright, making it look more like a greeting. So technically, the Vulcan salute is not exactly the same as the Jewish blessing. Nevertheless, it is close enough to evoke instant recognition among most Jews. Did Gene Roddenberry know at the time of the filming that the Vulcan salute was based on a Jewish ritual? That question remains unanswered. However, Rabbi Gershom surmises it probably he probably did not, yeah. or he would have objected to it yeah. on grounds of it being too Judeo-Christian. Yeah. More likely, Roddenberry thought it was a weird variation of the hippie peace sign. Certainly, that's how Gentile trekkers saw it for many years. Only much later did Nimoy publicly explain the source of his inspiration. Wow. Well, that was enlightening. <laughs> okay. Well, Gary, what about your fact? Okay. Well, I took as my fact the temporal wars, because I think that that's going to become more of an issue in the upcoming episodes. Oh, or yeah. at least in some way, shape, or form, I'm, I perceive that what some of the regrets that Vance expressed earlier and some some of the actions that the Federation may have taken might be plot points that will be revealed later on. All right. So, my as I said, my insufficient fact is the temporal wars. Now, for a long time Star Trek fans, you may remember that this was a storyline that was originally introduced in Star Trek Enterprise. In fact, it was first referred to as the Temporal Cold War, um, and it was a conflict fought between several time-traveling factions, each from different points in time, and attempting to manipulate history for their own benefit. You know, basically in violation of the Temporal Accords. Right. You know, each of these factions opposed one another in their attempts to gain dominance over the time stream, and often used proxy powers such as the Suleiman that we saw in Enterprise, to carry out their missions. They were opposed by the, a group of temporal agents from the 31st century, Daniels, who you may have, you may have mm -hmm. seen in that show, who attempt to protect the integrity of the timeline. Now, Discovery Season 3 has made several references to Starfleet's involvements in the more heated phase of the temporal wars, it seems that the Federation became involved in the 30th century, and after the conflict ended, the Federation outlawed time travel technology. Some of this was discussed even back as early as when um, Saru and the crew first come to Federation headquarters. Mm. Now, now that Discovery is in the 32nd century, they have access to all the information Starfleet has on the Temporal Wars. And, and a, now, j just if you didn't know where this came from, mm -hmm. just a little background. So according to the Enterprise co-creators, Rick Berman and Brandon Braga, the idea developed in response to a request made by Paramount for Enterprise to be more futuristic. Mm. Now, this is what I don't get. Last time I checked, all the Star Trek shows happened centuries in the future. 
So I'm wondering what the hell they didn't get about a group of people flying in a starship not being futuristic. <laughs> now, what I think might be the case is that because Star uh, Enterprise is the first prequel, which means it precedes the original series, mm-hmm. they may have felt that that there were going to be it was going to be too modernized. There were going to be two things too close to modern timeline mm. that was not the case and so they wanted something that would be more futuristic so so according to braga the storyline played a part of the series from the pilot eventually coming to a close in season four's um season opener okay um more than a third of the episodes that even deal with the temporal wars occur in season one and in season two pretty much the storyline is almost abandoned you know, by season three, the temporal cold wars have become, you know, found stiff competition because that whole season arc is given over to the Zindi war. Mm-hmm. And so, but there are, but, but oddly out of the three first seasons, season three is the second is the season with the most, the second most episodes devoted to the storyline. Um, but the 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 concentration of the Zindi War kind of really takes a lot of the steam out of it. Mm. So, however, you know there were there are still like I said four episodes in season four as opposed to five episodes in season one and only three in season two. For the most part, n- this really wasn't moving the story forward. There wasn't enough progress, and I think in large part the writers were becoming disengaged or uninterested in it although they felt an obligation to try to finish it off well so as you all know there was a threat for the show to be canceled at the end of season three and in fact one of the stipulations that the UPN network put on the production team was that they needed to see some change in leadership which did occur Uh, Berman and Braga who had been the showrunners for the first three seasons took a step back, and they brought in Manny Cotto, who had been a writer on 24 and also had some other experiences on show running. And so he took over season four, which I think anybody who's watched the entire series thinks that that, that season is the, the most cohesive and the best of the four seasons altogether. Mm. Now, with that, that change in leadership, Braga felt that... the there came also a desire to end the story arc of the Temporal Cold War, partially due to Manny Cotto's um, having no interest in it. Mm. So the truth be told, by the, like I said, by the end of this, um, season three, there had been very little development. And Cotto even remarks, I felt that everything that had been said about the Temporal Cold War had already been said. I felt a heavy reliance on time travel at the beginning of the Enterprise, and I wanted season four to be relatively time travel free hmm. season, and that's why I debated writing about it in season four. Hmm. Now, according to actor John Billingsley, who played Flox, oh yeah, you know Paramount also bore some of the responsibility for ending the time traveling storyline. Billingsley recalled, "I definitely felt as if it there were." Um, a dictate from on high from the network level or the studio level to end the temporal time war. 
wrap it up immediately. And I tended to concur on the broader point that the temporal time war never really got off the ground. The storytelling was too extenuated and that it needed to die. Hmm. And at the same time, I thought that I think the network forced them to tie it all up so abruptly that the way in which they had to do it was not deaf in it as it needed to be. And, right. and I think I think anybody who's following those storylines along is true. You know, when you get to Stormfront, which is the the season closer for season three, and there's a cliffhanger, and then the very next season we end up back in World War era. Um, United States. Oh, that's right. And the Enterprise is flying over the United States, all battered from the Zindi conflict. And it's being shot at by German planes that are in the United States airspace. Right. Because there's an alien, there's one of the factions has partnered with the with the Nazis, and they've been able to overcome the U.S. forces. Mm-hmm. Um, so Discovery has... You know, basically been providing us with a lot of information about the Temporal War. And what I think is that they're about to give us more information about it. Hopefully they'll be able to convey exactly what happens when the war goes from cold to hot. Right. Right. Yeah. All right. Okay. So now let's move into Star Trek news. This week we have a few stories from the world of Trek. So let's dive in. Okay, so Lower Decks, we got some news about Lower Decks. So the 10 season one episodes of the animated series will be available outside the U.S. and Canada on the streaming service Amazon Prime Video beginning on January 22nd. Oh, wow, that's pretty good news. Yeah, I think that is. So a lot of our fans overseas who haven't had a chance to see the series can now look at it, you know, at the leisure beginning on January 22nd. And you can go back and listen to our podcast episodes where we t- break down the entire oh, series. Oh, that's true. Okay. So I'm just saying. Yeah. You know, trying to get it's some... It's a win-win situation. It's a win-win for me. That's all I'm saying. Uh-huh. And next we have some Chris Pine news. So according Who? to... Uh-huh. According to a recent interview with comicbook.com, Chris Pine is ready and hopeful to return to Star Trek especially if Quentin Tarantino's plan of making an R-rated intergalactic space saga comes to fruition. Pine commented, You know, I haven't read the script. I really, in terms of Star Trek of it all, I wish I knew anything. I'm quite literally the one of the last people ever to find out. Yeah. Yeah. So I haven't read that script. I don't know where it is in development. I haven't read Noah Hawley's script. I have no idea what's happening in Star Trek land. But I love the character. I love the universe. I love my friends in it, you know, and to have Quentin take a, a Quentin take on it would be extremely interesting and entertaining. You know, look, whatever happens, if it comes back or not, it's a great universe. <laughs> it deserves to have a future. And I hope that's the case. Okay. Boy, that was really committal, wasn't it? Right. That was a strong advocation <laughs> for getting that another movie out there. So, as many of the fans know, Pine last portrayed Kirk in the 2016 uh, film Star Trek Beyond. 
In the time since that movie's release, Tarantino has been re has been revealed to be working on his own installation uh, for the franchise, but there has been no official word on whether or not that's actually happening. Recently, Mark L. Smith opened up about writing a script for such a Tarantino film, and it seems to have big plans for Captain Kirk. Smith commented, I wrote a Star Trek with uh, Tarantino, and that was a sci-fi script on which I could have fun and lean into something bigger and broader, you know, um, Smith told SFX Magazine. Oh, okay. Kirk is always just so fun. Tarantino and I had so much fun with him. And because Kirk is just William Shatner, you know? I mean, not well, really. Not really. Not, not really. really. <laughs> but anyways. It's like you're not sure who is who. You just, you know, you could kind of lean into that. Because you watch Chris Pine and he's playing Kirk. But you're also playing William Shatner a touch. Mm. Really? Really. Okay, so... That must have been an interesting script. <laughs> we just hope that it does. nobody else sees it, you know, so... Rumors and reports have bounced back and forth in regards to whether or not Tarantino would get moving on a Star Trek movie. Star Trek has found a new stride with shows on CBS All Access in recent years. The streaming service soon to be converted to Paramount+. Plus. In the meantime, fans can look forward to Pine's return as Steve Trevor. I know I'm looking forward to it. Uh, in Wonder Woman 1984, which hits theaters and HBO Max on December 25th. So what you're saying is you're not holding out hope for a Tarantino film. Well, I don't want to see a Tarantino R-rated version of Star Trek. I have nothing against R-rated films, you know, but I don't want to see a Tarantino film uh, that's in the Star Trek universe. Well, so. you know, there's a requirement that if you're going to make a movie with Tarantino, there has to be a role for Samuel Jackson. <laughs> and you know, I'm just you know, a while ago there was that meme out there of Sam Samuel with the Klingon makeup on. Yeah. But uh, I, I I'm just saying. I don't want to see that. Yeah. So. Yeah. I I'm not a big fan of QTs either. I like Pulp Fiction. But I don't want to see him touch the... Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's not that I don't want to ever see Chris Pine again as Kirk. But they are getting... You know, they're... I mean, the first film that they made was in 2009. It is now 2020, about to be 2021. Right, right. Yeah, they, what you're trying to say, they're getting long in the tooth? Yeah, for them to still be on that five-year mis mission. That's a long five-year mission. mission. Yeah, Woo! yeah. So maybe they're time travelers, too, so... <laughs> So we don't know. Okay, so let's move on to other news. And uh, Gary, what can you tell us about The Ready Room? All right, so the December 17th installment of The Ready Room begins with a brief feature featuring showrunner Michelle Paradise, uh, who discusses the complex relationship between Giorgio and Michael. And, I, and, you know, I really like the fact that they have, for the, for the several episodes that we've seen this season, They've kind of opened it up with a conversation with her or with Olatunde, but somebody who gives us some background information on how they're examining, how they're addressing yeah, the they're, drama of the story. Right, their intentions behind the story. Right, right. right. And, 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 and it's not like it's something that is 
well, it it doesn't it's it shows up on screen as well as when right. they talk about it. Right. But when they talk about it, you give a it gives it a much clearer intention about how how they approach the story. Right. It either confirms or or it tells you another way to look at that episode than what the, the way you were looking at it. Right. And as I was talking about Olatunde, you know, he commented on the use of the Guardian Forever portal in the Terra Firma episodes. Also, uh, Will Wheaton conducted a interesting interview with Michelle Yao herself from from her home in Paris. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes, she was in Ooh. Paris. That's, that's right. She leaves the Cups Discovery set, and she immediately ends up in Paris for the lockdown. And she was looking good. She wasn't looking bad. That's yeah. a good-looking woman. She is. She is. Now, uh, Yao talked about her approach to portraying both the Prime and the Terran versions of Giorgio, as well as her close relationship with all the members of the discovery cast mm-hmm. you know and following the interview the ready room included an interesting feature on the work of christopher mcguire who serves as a stunt coordinator for the for the tv show um, for the next installment wheaton's is going to be interviewing doug jones and janice kidder who were betraying Saru and Osira, respectively, if you didn't know that, you know. <laughs> okay, so in closing, we'll be back next week to break down the next episode. Now, here's an interesting development in the yeah. last 24 hours. Yes, yes. Uh, it, uh, at least the CBS announced that the title of the episode would be different. Yes, so, changed. <laughs> so it, it was first uh, published that... It was going to be called the Citadel, right? And now it's called Sukal. Sukal. Yeah. Yes. So, so okay. Yeah. And so I don't know what significance that we can glean from that. Right. But. Right. It seems like Sukal is going to be a name that comes. I would say from the Kelpian, you know, it, language. It might. It, it might. It might. It might. Uh, so, but it just seems like a lot of the alien languages use. You know, apostrophes. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Isn't that interesting? For some reason. Yeah. Okay. Like to Paul and uh, yeah. Right. So um, Discovery will investigate uh, what is inside the Veruban Nebula in this next episode. And um, also from the trailer, it looks like Michael and Dr. Colbert will um, actually go to the remnants of the starship that has been trapped in the nebula for over 100 years. Also in a subplot, Gray finally up, reappears to Adira. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's a positive development there, too. Yes, yes. Yeah. So Call will drop in the U.S. on Christmas Eve, Thursday, December 24th, on CBS All Access. In Canada, you can catch it on CTV Sci-Fi Channel, as well as streaming on Crave. And finally, international audiences can see the show on Netflix beginning on Christmas Day, December 25th. So finally, we believe Age of Discovery, our podcast brings a unique insight to the analysis of the show. If you agree, please share a link of the show with people you know who enjoy Star Trek as well. But until that time... Like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter, on Facebook at facebook.com, Star Trek AOD, at our website, StarTrekAOD.net, 
where we offer additional articles on Star Trek canon, interesting sidebar issues, and other aspects of the show. Also, email the show at StarTrekAOD at gmail.com. We like to get feedback from our, fa- our audiences, so if you have a different take on something than we had, you want to engage in the dialogue, I mean, and in fact, if you have some suggestions on how we can format the show, I mean, please contact us. But until then, live long and prosper.